0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroder's. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products to adopt any investment strategy.
1: Welcome back to our second part with guest Tobias Carlisle. This second section is recorded much more recently than the first part, if you've listened to that, and is basically one year on since the announcement of the COVID vaccination and the value rotation that occurred with that. So you might know Tobias from his own podcast. He's the host of the Acquirer's podcast and also the host of Value After Hours. He is also the Founder and the Managing Director of Acquires Funds. In his second appearance on the TVP pod, Tobias and Juan are going to discuss the role of data in investment strategy, forecasting probabilities, and looking back at a year in value since the announcement of the vaccination for COVID-19. We've got one definition to Discuss before we kick off this episode. So Juan and Tobias are going to talk about base rates. You might be familiar with base rates as defined generally in banking, which is when the Bank of England sets the interest rate at which it lends money. Juan and Tobias are actually going to be using base rate in its definition from statistics, where a base rate refers to the percentage of a population which has a specific characteristic. For example, 10% of people are left-handed, so if you selected a random person had no information related to their handedness, you could probably guess that there's a 1 in 10 chance of that person being left-handed. One last thing, you will be delighted to see that we are launching a mini-series just on ESG. These episodes are going to come out on Thursdays. Uh, we're doing it in honor of COP26, so please give a listen later this week.
2: Tobas Carlisle, welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here again. How are you?
0: Thanks, Juan. such a pleasure to be back. It's great to see you again. I'm so happy to be back on the Schroeder's uh, Value Podcast. It's, um, it, it's, it's one of my favorites and, and, and so is the firm.
2: Uh, thank you very much. for the very kind. Um, maybe... For those that don't know you and haven't heard of you and haven't listened to our first episode, which they should, um, can you please give us a little bit of your background, um, how you came out uh, to be the investor that you are today?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm Australian. I started out as a corporate advisory lawyer in the early 2000s. my first day of work was was the the peak of the dot com boom dot com one and so I saw the wreckage and uh, you know thought I was going to be doing kind of VC work, ended up doing a lot of M and A and buyout work and uh, liquidations and activism, which we didn't have a name for it then, but uh, that's what you know they were like corporate raiders from the eighties who had come back, and I just found it all fascinating. Um, so I I you know read my Graham and Dodd to understand what uh, those guys were were, were doing, and uh, thought you probably unlikely that we'll ever see anything like that in the market again. But you know, it, it turns out that you do see deep value type opportunities come around on a semi-regular basis. The thousand-year storm rolls around about every seven years, and then there's lots of value around. So I uh, I just started reading around it and researching it at the same time that I was working as a lawyer. Uh, came to San Francisco in the States and met my, my wife. Uh, went back to Australia for a little while, then came back to the States, and we've been here since 2010. Um, and I've been running this firm and building this firm up to uh, to, to to use the the strategies that um, probably a more traditional value investor uh, would use. You know, So I'm, I'm, I'm much more closer to the Graham and Dodd end of value than I am to the Buffett end, but Buffett is now sort of the midpoint. I think that value has sort of stretched well beyond Buffett into this much growthier territory, and we, we can talk about what that means. But basically, I think it's the extent to which you believe the growth rates are uh, um, will, will persist and the extent to which that factors into your valuation. I think that this is where... Uh, the more modern value guys have been much more willing to accept these higher rates of growth at face value and have ridden that wave. And the more traditional value guys who are perhaps more conservative, um, you know, look at those valuation based on those very high rates of growth and think, you know, if we go and look at our base rates for high rates of growth for very big companies, we see that it's, it's a very small handful that can sustain those rates of growth, and we all know what they are because they're the they're the fangs: of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, uh, Alpha. Or that's Google, but uh, you know the fang type names. And I think that uh, what a lot of investors in the market now do is they look for the next Amazon. And Amazon's a good example because Amazon is one that has, you know, Amazon under earned for a long time, didn't make a lot of money, and that was Jeff Bezos. Uh, doing that on purpose, trying to um, suppress the amount of tax that they paid. You know, running it like a private company, reinvesting, and then uh, AWS comes along and they become wildly profitable. And so, I think that a lot of investors now have that mental model where they say, "Well, you can find these companies that don't really earn, and at some point they'll figure this out." Google too was like that. Google, I think Google went public before they had figured out the click-based advertising. I'm not entirely sure, but I. Th- it was around that sort of time and it wasn't clear that that was going to be as wildly successful as it has been. So, I think now investors use that mental model and they say, well, we can find these things that have these tremendous rates of growth and we can forecast some sort of mature uh, margin from that. And then we can see that these things are going to be incredible earners. I think that the, the base rate for that is quite low. And uh, I, I tend to be at the more conservative end where I'd prefer that the cash flows are nearer term. And often when you do that, you, you're buying lower rates of growth. And so part of the way that I make money is through some mean reversion in the uh, the securities price to valuation and also in terms of the the company as it goes through its business cycle. There are some times when, it's, when they look really ugly. And paradoxically, that's a really interesting time to buy because as they do better through the cycle. They become more attractive and they look like better businesses. So that's sort of my approach in a nutshell. I'm I'm a more conservative, more traditional value type investor. That's been an absolutely terrible place to be for about a decade because uh, these bigger businesses, and there's been this debate, and we've, we've had this discussion before about whether this is a, a, a sort of permanent change where these businesses will be... Um, you know, that software, that idea of Mark Andreessen, software will eat the world, that that software layer will extract all of the value, and all these other businesses just can't compete, uh, whether that's sort of a, a, a secular change that just continues on from here until eternity, or whether that's sort of a little bit more cyclical, in which case uh, you and I are going to be doing a little bit better. And I think we've seen perhaps a little bit of a change back to, to the way that we invest. So. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about all of that.
2: It pains me when people say, or the perception that values and strategy is a riskier strategy than any other strategy. And one of the things that I like, we, we discuss sometimes with people and clients is the fact that when, because we, we are Grahamites at heart, or we're more close to Graham as well rather than to the current Buffett, or we're more closer to the Buffett of the 90, late 1950s and early 1960s than. The Buffett uh, today. And at its inception, value was about, um, was, value was very tangible. Like you were looking at the balance sheet and things were traded, like the price of the shares were traded below what you could get for the balance sheet once you liquidated the balance sheet, it no debt. So there was no such thing as the, the incorporation of the growth rate was not as meaningful at the beginning, I guess. And growth in its in nature is speculative. It's very difficult to forecast. It's one of the most difficult variables to forecast in the whole valuation equation. And so people that are counting on the growth rate to being exponentially high or in perpetuity at X level beyond the base rates or what historical norms have said, um, they are playing, we believe, a quite risky game, I guess.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, but it's been a game that has been very well rewarded for a long period of time now, and uh, it's it, it's you, you sort of start sounding like you know your chicken little with the sky falling, and the sky is never falling, and 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 we, we we obviously we're going to talk about that too. But, um, it's an unusual time in the markets that we've gone this long. Without a crash, I, I don't regard March 2020 as a crash. I think I thought it was going to be the real thing at the time, but it's probably more like a flash crash that immediately recovered to all-time highs, and now we've proceeded well above, above mm-hmm. those highs. Uh, my definition of a, a sort of bear market is something that, you know, you go sideways for 12 months, and then you have this uh, stomach-churning roller coaster ride down where you go down 50%, and then you spend another. Six months or so finding new lows, and you do that fourteen or fifteen times, and the 15th new low or the sixteenth new low, you just think this thing's never ever going to recover and of course that 's the point when the last person doesn 't believe that it will ever recover that 's when it starts to recover and that's that 's what happened in two thousand and that 's what happened in two thousand eight nine Graham says that you shouldn 't be forecasting growth, you should take that as a sort of you should look at that trend and, and turn that into sort of an average of earnings power. That might be a little bit too conservative. It does seem that there is some persistent growth in some businesses. And that, I think, was Graham, uh, sorry, Buffett's great innovation that he was able to identify those companies that had businesses that were genuinely good businesses that had some moat protection. But there are very few of them. It's very hard to identify them scientifically, repeatedly. And uh, it's, it's, it's Buffett's great genius that he has been able to do that. But when you when you hear him talk about the way that he does these things, I don't think that there are many mere mortals that either have the the recollection or the intellect or the time in the market where, you know, you, I've been to the meetings where they'll ask him about, let's say, talk about the traffic snarl in the um, Chicago uh, rail yards. And extemporaneously, off the top of his head, he'll give this five-minute analysis of that I hadn't even heard of that thing at the time. You know, he has got he's he because he, he reads so broadly, and that's that's sort of what it takes. You have to understand where all of the chess pieces are on the board all the time and what they're worth and how they move together. And it's it's a very difficult thing for most mere mortals to do.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um you are a very data-driven um investor, you have studied the investment strategy for many years, you have written books, and actually, my understanding is that you are in the process of writing a new book, which I'm going to ask about uh, in a bit. Has your understanding or the way that you think about value evolved over the years, or you still think about it under the same optic? And within that, has the 10 years of value struggling over the last decade changed anything for you?
0: I think that I'm... Always learning and always open to to new ideas, and I have tried to incorporate into my process those ideas that I think are robust and repeatable. and uh, And I've learned new things as it's gone along. I, I, and I'm data driven in the sense that I take, I, I do a lot of back testing. I like to take an idea, you know, do very high rates of growth in revenues or earnings translate into very high rates of growth in stock price performance. No, they don't. And th- that will be shocking to a lot of people. And But that's been a very well-known thing for a long time. You can read Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street. You can look at all the testing. But in recent times, that has been probably the best indicator of how well a, a, a stock price will perform. And, and that, when I say re- recent times, sort of 2015 to date, which is a long period of time, in the market. I think it's right that it's about 10 years of underperformance for for value guys. The other the other criticism of the deeper value guy, and I sort of alluded to this at the start, you know, when you talk about mean reversion in stock prices, what you're saying is that I'm relying on the I'm relying on the stock price performance to generate some of my return. And they would say, that's not what you should be doing. That's not real value investing. What you should be doing is looking at the underlying value of the company and you're looking at the improvement in the value of the company over a longer period of time. That is the thing that does generate more return than the change in the multiple. But over shorter periods of time, shorter periods of time includes periods out to about five years, which is a reasonably long period of time uh, in a human lifetime. It is uh, a lot of that return is... Uh, the change in in the multiple that folks are prepared to pay for stocks. So when you look at the things that are predictable, the things that are predictable are more the change in the multiple than in the underlying improvement in the business or the underlying moves in the business. And the reason for that is when companies become super earners, when they become economically super profitable, it attracts competition from adjacent businesses, adjacent industries, Everybody wants, that, everybody wants to earn more on what they invest in the market, including the, those businesses. So uh, it's unusual for that very high rate of profitability to be sustained. But perhaps there's some change in that the, you know, network businesses do seem to be become more valuable as the network grows. And so that's a, that's a Google-type business. It would be hard to supplant Google search, uh, the, the way that all of these businesses have been toppled in the past is that it's sort of the attack is oblique. It's not an attack directly along the line of business that they run. You know, you think about Microsoft with Windows. Windows is still the standard and, and lots of folks use Windows. But now we have other – there are other reasons to own other operating systems. Macs, you know, they're just a more attractive looking thing. They were easier to use. They're a little bit cooler. You know, and th- those things do factor in. Then it became, you know, we, we all went mobile. And so, it sort of shifted away from Windows a little bit again. And then search became sort of, we all now interact with our computers mostly through the browser. Everything is, is through the browser. So, that again has changed the nature of, of, of that business. And I, I think that that will continue to happen. It's very, very difficult to predict where the incursion will be made and how your business will be toppled. So if you're a little bit more conservative, what you can do is you can say, well, I don't want to pay those very high multiples for something. And let's take Microsoft as an example. It's very hard for me to see how Microsoft gets unseated at the moment. The thing that Microsoft, everybody's got Word, Excel, they've got the Office suite. Well, most people are still on Windows type machines. Um, and... I. Well, you you were sort of a, you look at the stock price performance over the last decade, it's absolutely phenomenal. But what people forget, and I went to these conferences in 2010 and 11 when people were pitching Microsoft, Microsoft had an 11% free cash flow yield. It had had its first year of revenue decline. They had a CEO that people didn't really like, and then they had a CEO that nobody had ever really heard of. And so you had to invest at that point with that with those conditions, where it was a not a great looking business. It looked like it might be in decline, and you had an untested CEO. And then you had to hold as it progressed from an eleven percent free cash flow yield to a three percent free cash flow yield, where it is roughly about now. And you had to benefit over that period of time of rapidly improve, rapidly growing revenues as they transition from you know you buy micro, you buy your Windows once and you pay whatever five hundred bucks. Now you pay whatever it is, $10 per license for, for each person for your office suite on a monthly basis. And so you earn, they earn $120 a year rather than $500 every three or four years. It's a, it's a totally different business. And you had you, there's no way in the world you foresaw that coming. And then you had to hold through that entire period of time. So really, the, the, the way that folks made money out of Microsoft was by starting out buying it as a deep value company and then holding it as it transitioned and never selling. It's a tough ask, I think, for someone who's, you know, I can imagine buying it on 11% free cash flow. It would be very difficult for me to hold it on a 3% free cash flow. I I, I don't own it. That's that's the the, the challenge, right? The
2: other example that you actually mentioned in one of your books is that Apple, and this is not something that people, I have never heard anyone talk about this, but Apple was a net net in 2002 or something like that. It was actually- 2002, yeah. Below its uh, networking capital uh, on a pressure basis, uh, once you discounted all of the all of their debt and the cash on the balance sheet, and it would have been very difficult for anyone to take a view that Apple was going to become the the, the company that it uh, went on to to become uh, years later.
0: And many times in between, then too, Apple has the question has always been. How sustainable is this? Uh, Like, will people continue to pay two thousand dollars for a cell phone and lock themselves into this ecosystem, where you know? Then once you've got the cell phone, it makes does might make sense to have Apple TV, an Apple laptop, an iPad, uh, a Mac on your desk. Uh, And I have all of those things, so uh, I, I have bought all of that stuff, and I'm part of that ecosystem but if, as you say very very difficult to foresee that happening in 2002 when it was net cash but also th- through that period of time every time that apple the new cycle comes around for a new phone is it true that people will then transition to the new phone or will they try something else uh, i have transitioned away from the cell phone to a google phone because it works better with all of my google business suite of uh you know gmail and all of the things that i use so uh, other people will do those things. The, the, the question is hard to answer for me when they're very, very expensive. But when they're cheap, you have that optionality built into them where, you know, it doesn't, not a lot has to go right for this investment to work out. I'm not relying on uh, this it, continued superiority. What I'm relying on is just the market recognizing that this thing is better than it appears. And then you've got all that upside. Uh, you're not paying for that upside. If it eventuates, then you, you're the beneficiary of it.
2: You happen to be the host of two of the most successful podcasts in finance that have come in the last few years. And I have to say that I'm a fan of both. And I really, really like Valley of Hours, And we've had Jake on the pod as a guest. And it's super interesting. And I think that you guys have done uh, something really, really fun and entertaining. And it's different. And you complement each other very well. But from a process perspective... What tools have you learned over the last three years from the many guests that you had, and maybe even the conversations that you have with Bill and and, and
0: Jake, uh,
2: that have helped you to deal with uncertainty, or the uncertainty that every investor has to go through in every day?
0: Well, thank you very much for that. I I, I don't know how true any of that is. But I'll, I'll take that. I'll take those compliments. Um, it's it's been great that, that both of those podcasts are very useful learning tools. One is you know Jake is so steady and um, steeped in that Buffett Munger, um way of thinking that it's very good to bounce ideas off him and he will say, you know, maybe we just with a little bit more patience, maybe this thing will just work out and maybe it's going to be okay. You know, if we, in the depths of, you know, when probably the toughest time I think was when, after we went through, you know, we will we all knew that the market was very, very expensive and we knew that some, there was something was going to come along to pop, pop that balloon. And then we looked like we had the crash. Value does worse than anything else on the way down. So the market goes down 35%, value goes down 50%. And then everything else rockets out the other side <laughs> except for value and we underperform at the other side as well. I think if there was, if there was any darker time in the market then I, 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 that 's the darkest time for me that I had ever seen maybe maybe it really is broken, maybe it can 't come back and I would talk to Jake about that pretty regularly on the podcast and outside of it as well, and, and his view was, you know what if we look through, which is what we 're supposed to do, if we look through at the underlying, you can see that the flows are st- the businesses are still generating good cash flows they 're buying back stock. It becomes inevitable at some stage that the market recognizes this and you, you you just have to basically survive to that point, point. and I really think that that's the key to value investing because it is you 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 must have this divergent view of what the market does. You must diverge from the market in your performance, and sometimes you're going to diverge negatively, and that's the thing that really tests value investors. That's can you stomach holding a different portfolio and underperforming when it's so obvious that if you just go and buy Fang going to do much much better than everybody else and that's an easy one decision to make so it's good to have you know that that the temperament part of it the um, not so much the rash the rational part we can is, is, is it is an easy part to do it's the irrational part where you, you worry about whether you're doing the right thing but that's the really difficult part so from that perspective that was great I also made a point of getting guys on the podcast who were more growthy type investors to talk to them and see if I could get something from their process and I certainly did there are things that there are things that I learned more about businesses um, that I probably didn't understand up to that point I don't think that it really changed my process much because I take those ideas and then I go back and test them you know uh, big margins a good thing well I wrote in quantitative value in 2012 that margins were big margins are a good thing in a business so I knew that to be the case, but it was good to just sort of get that reinforcement that if you had, if you go through a period like, you know, quality as quality as a factor is distinct from value as a factor. I, I have always said that I really think that they're both part of the same thing, but you can—they're definitely different. You know, one one is a multiple—that's the—that's value, and then quality is a question of return on assets transmission of revenue into into cash flows profitability steadiness of those returns and those sort of those sort of things so quality to me is more a question of how good is the business and value is a question of what are you paying for that business and so when you combine them together which is probably that's that's really what I try to do do both of them <laughs> at the same time it's the quality that will help you more in a period of time like we've gone through than the value value is going to for whatever reason, can't keep up with the market, it, and it makes total sense to me that when the market gets uh, speculative, people want the more glamorous, fast-growing names. And definitionally, as a value investor, you're not in those names. And that, you know, as David Einhorn points out, two times overvalued is irrational, but three times overvalued is no more irrational than two times overvalued. It's just it's still irrational, and so you, you can't. Bring your value mindset to that and try to articulate why one is worse than the other. it's, it, it's not, I and mean, then three times you can proceed on to four times. My process has I've taken all of those bits and pieces from those guys. Um, I've gone back and tested them and thought about it. So from those two perspectives, I always want to learn something new, and I always want to try to you know equally be skeptical about that. So open-minded and skeptical, I think is the and the podcast just helps me work that out in real time.
2: One thing that you've mentioned um, in this conversation and something that comes regularly on the pod is the use of base rates, which um, it's quite important and a lot of investors uh, use them. Um, Michael Mabusin came out with uh, a research paper, I think it was quite recently, where he was saying that Amazon had kind of rebased the growth uh, revenue line base rate. And he was referring to a piece that he had made in the past where he thought that it was impossible for uh, Amazon to keep on growing the way that it was growing based on the base rate, and then they kind of uh dead. Do you have any thoughts on that
0: yeah i i've Amazon was a hundred billion dollars did a forty five percent year on that one hundred billion dollar base, like just absolutely bonkers numbers makes as you know defies the base rates. but having said that, you know it's still one company yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that you throw out the base rates, it just means that. And Amazon, you know, that I think Buffett and Munger would have said that retail has always been a really tough business because it's not so much that you know retail is a great business, it's just that the competition comes along and it's always sort of this uh industry shaking, game changing competition. And they will point out, you know, at one stage you needed to have the um the the very big store right near the tram stop because that was sort of the deficit. you we started out with mom and pop type stores and then it became uh, bigger stores right near the tram stop. And then it became big box retailers that could be further away, but they were offering discounted price. So that's a Walmart type business. And now it's just Amazon is the retailer that comes over the top. I don't know what the next iteration is. It could be Shopify with like Amazon is uh, the empire and Shopify is helping all of the rebels and each individual can compete more ferociously than Amazon can in, in totality because each individual is more incentivized for their own little part of the business. And Amazon, it's very, you know, you shop through Amazon, now, there's a lot of junky stuff in there. Who knows how the next iteration goes, but there will be a change inevitably at some point in the future. And that's the tough thing about retail. It's always this groundbreaking change. So I don't know that the book is closed on Amazon yet, but it's certainly base rate defying. That's interesting.
2: One recurring topic on this podcast is that of probabilities. And I like the way that Jake and Anadouk frame it where after enough data, if you believe sales or margins are going to be X percent and you assign a probability number to that forecast, say 50%, then with enough data, that should mean that five out of 10 times that should be the expected result. If you're over, over or underestimating, then there is a signal that you should that should help you better calibrate. But this sounds easier said than done. Have you incorporated probabilistic thinking as part of your process as a value investor, and or how do you think about it?
0: Yeah, my whole process is probabilistic from from the very start, but it's all research based. Um, and that the the two broad areas of focus for me are always how do we get better at forecasting what a business will do in. The next quarter, year, three years, five years, and then how do we position ourselves? Like what's an appropriate amount of money then to pay for some of these forecasts? And, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the forecasting ever gets any better. But I definitely try to, you know, if if there, if there are changes in the market and Amazon is a new data point that needs to be incorporated in, it does change the distribution. It does change. I don't know necessarily now that I would assume that sort of fade that I would have just automatically built into most models in the past. Now I might say, let's not assume a fade. Let's just keep on updating as we go along and see and see where we are. And if that fade manifests, then we need to start incorporating it into our model. So I, I just look at, I think that the, the only thing you really can do is look at the conditions that exist right now and forecast in a very short term it's a funny thing, you know. It's easier to forecast three to five years out than it is to forecast a quarter to a year out. I think, mm-hmm. because you can you can over that period of time, it becomes more. Does the stock price follow the the underlying business, mm-hmm. and do you have enough of a discount so that you, you you can get paid and generate a reasonable return? The other thing is that you know the market is so expensive, and there are so many expensive companies in the market you probably do have to walk back your return expectations and i i'm always looking at the portfolio and i have an an estimate for you know I, I can tell what we're earning on assets what we're reinvesting what we're expecting to get out of the portfolio as a whole and where i think the portfolio can grow to in the next year you know what the market will pay for that that's a very difficult thing to say but i would rather say Let's buy this at a discount to what the market is is assuming for everything else, then let's pay a premium for what the market is assuming for everything else. Because I still think that you probably get the benefit of the mean reversion if you're buying at a discount rather than, you know, you, you get the disbenefit or you get you're probably going to see some mean reversion if you're overpaying. You're assuming that these companies are going to stay as as strong as they are. Whereas if I look at the value portfolios, I think that the The expected returns based on reinvestment and flows are much higher, sort of teens kind of numbers. And then if you expect some mean reversion in those, then maybe potentially even a little bit higher than that again. So, that would direct me more to value at this point in the market. So, I think that the base rates are always first and foremost in my mind. It's always a probabilistic approach. We know that we're going to be wrong on about half of the businesses that we put into the portfolio it doesn't really bother me we're going to be wrong we're going to update we'll, we'll move some of them out and the ones that we're right on will hopefully make up for the ones that we're wrong and then a little bit and we're going to outperform and i think that that's the only way you can approach it because if you become too deterministic about these businesses you get locked into them there's all of these behavioral errors if you do that you keep on waiting for the turnaround; turn around they never do and that's just that's that's the traditional that's the old value trap and I, i've had my fair share and i'm for sure and certain, going to have a lot more as the, uh, and I think that's, it. You, you have to have them in the portfolio; otherwise, you're not going to get the ones that, that are much much better than everybody thinks.
1: So, we
2: are recording this episode thinking about um, the one year anniversary of vaccination day, which many value investors celebrate as the turn of value. <laughs> I'm really worried that I'm jinxing something here. Um, So, I wanted to bring back something that Anne Duke also said, which is the fact that when an investor makes a mistake, like the whole team will get together, they will try to analyze what went wrong, did they miss something on the fundamentals of the company, was the position wrong, Um, what were the risks, they underestimated the risks. But she was also saying, and this is something that another guest also brought into the conversation, She she made the point that when something goes right, people don't don't go through that exercise. And and they should, because that's part of the process. Did you get it right because of process or you got lucky? And if it was process, did you size it correctly? Was was your investment position correctly? Or you could have uh, had a better outcome if the size was uh, higher. And we thought that was really interesting. And so I wanted to ask you, and maybe one of the things that value investors tend to do a lot and take that fold is the fact that we tend to sell too early. So I wanted to ask you as a value investor, um, is there any, is there any way that we can fight against that um, mindset of being too focused on what can go wrong and not think about how well things can go on and take or make the most out of it?
0: Well, my process is to get lucky. That's that's the whole that's my, that's my whole approach. Uh, you know, i I think it's a, I think it's a the 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 post mortem for things that go well. Uh, yeah, most people don't do it; totally overlooked. And I really the the whole reason that I started on this process and, and making process so much more important than the outcome was my experience through two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine was much was very good. But I had, you know, I was in a whole lot of net nets in 2008 and 2009 and they all did very well and everybody sort of knows that that was a very good period of time for that very deep value style. But I went back after I had, um, had a good year and I looked at what the, the universe of things that I could have held versus what I actually did hold and I found that I had extracted about a third of the value that I could have. And so it would have been a stupendous year. If it was. A, it was an unusually good year. I've never had a year like it since, and I don't think I'd had one beforehand. But the year could have been about three times better than it was. And that was really the thing that started me on the. You know, you do need to eliminate these little biases that you have. And so I, I'm a. I'm. I'm a believer And now, now I do. You know, we're very, very process driven. We we have a very, very strict process for the way that things are implemented. So. I'm really not that important to the way that things operate. I'm, um, I'm the keeper of the process rather than somebody making investment decisions or anything like that. So if I, w- if I wasn't here, the process would continue on without me. So I, 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 like, that. Um, I like that approach because, you know, I have – there are good days and there are bad days, right? Some days you show up and you're very happy and everything feels great and you feel aggressive. And, you know, the saps up and it feels like a, it feels like a good time to be in the markets. And other times you come in, it's a, you know, there's other stuff going on. It's a it's overcast. It's a bad day. You know, do you want to be making investment decisions on whether the sun's shining or not? Like probably not, but it's hard to you know, I feel it. So I I'm one hundred percent in agreement that process is essential and, and and that applies whether you're doing well or badly. If you're overshooting, that's that's great, but there's still an error there. And you got to figure out why the, the error, you know, the really difficult thing, having said all that, you know, there's wild variation in the market. You know, they'll tell you that the, whatever the market returns 9% a year, but the number of years that you actually generate 9%, like vanishingly small, right? Like tiny, tiny number. Most of the time the margin's like 20% plus or minus. That's like a 30% to a negative 10%. So I, I, have, you, have you done something good if it's a 30% year? Have you done something bad if it's a negative 10%? No, that's well within the range of expected outcomes. So I I, I think that one of the things that I really find helpful is to look back over 200 years of data. And there's a great bit of research by Michael Samonov, Mikhail Samonov, who mm-hmm. did this two centuries of value where he stitched together I, this whole stuff. On the, happened on the I did, yeah. And, and when you go back and you look at those things, you say, well, this has nothing to do with me at all. This is just this is what the market does. So I'm… I'm a bystander. I'm just trying to participate along. And I I recognize that next year, we could be down 50% or up 50%. And that's totally within the range of expected outcomes.
2: That's a good segue to my next question, which is, we recently watched this webinar about, the discussion was about the psychology of the cell. And the person, given the webinar, was making the point that, again, like people spend too much time uh, on the buy decision, but when it comes to sell, it, it, they don't think about it as much. And his, uh, the, the, the data that he had at his, in his analysis showed that uh, people give up good performance numbers by not selling correctly. And so how do you go about it?
0: Yeah, my it is one of those things that is hard because as a value guy, you're always buying... When things look really bleak and you have an idea where the valuation is, and then if you get lucky enough that it turns around and it does sort of approach your valuation and you sell at your valuation, you've inevitably left the rest of the performance on the table because the market has looked, oh, this thing's up over the last three years, likely that continues on and the speculators will grab it and they can push it up a lot higher than you thought was a sensible amount of money to pay for that thing. And so you're going to kick yourself for the fact that you did, oh, I should have just hold, held on. I've been doing it for long enough that uh, I've also seen the reverse where it gets to the price and you don't sell and then it's down 50% and you think, well, I should have sold it when I had the opportunity and I, but that was my, my process. So I've just built that. It's just built into my process now. But I have a slightly different approach because I think you want to be a value buyer and a quality holder. So while it's, while it's still, you know, over-earning, relative to its assets and you're still getting a reasonable return in there because there are other considerations tax considerations not so much in the vehicles that I run but for, for many other people there are tax considerations it's worth holding because there's an enormous amount of tax alpha which is just the you know delaying or or shifting to long-term capital gains all of those things are uh, generate a lot of return for you so I'm I have a very strict process, but it doesn't mean, you know, I regularly go on. I like to go back and look at the things that I've sold and see how well they've done. And they've, I, I always sell too early. Everybody does. Just It's just a fact of life. And it's just it's just the way that the markets are. So sell it, at sell the price that you you plan to. The only thing that I consider an error is not following the process.
2: Hmm. Uh, we had this uh, guest on the pod. His name is Anthony and He's one of the uh, first guys that did private equity in South Africa. And... Now they do activism in South Africa, which we thought was really interesting because activism hasn't really worked outside of the US. And in an emerging market country, um they they seem to be doing quite well. And at the end of the pod, it's all about process, of course, but he, he made the point that um process is important, but the best the best investment opportunities and the worst mistakes come from not following process. And there is a little bit of truth to that, and you see. Buffett or Graham with Geico or the 3G guys when they bought the brewery in Brazil uh, where there's that anecdote that he like paid a very uh, high price and no one believed that that was a great transaction but it went on to be their best investment ever and it took them to a whole different level.
0: Yeah so the, I would still say it's still a, a, it's still a function of process right like Graham's everybody knows that Graham made most of his money out of Geico rather than the net net buying, but doesn't that just say to you that, well, maybe you should be focusing on opportunities that look more like Geico and less like net nets, because net nets have this problem where you've got a you're 100% relying on stock market price reversion. And that's, you know, that's, that's a greater fool theory, right? I need the next guy to pay more than I did for this thing to work. And if he doesn't do that, then I'm out of luck. And so Graham, you know, in his most Buffett-like investment buys Geico, which is a pretty good business that grows over time and has all of these sort of embedded competitive advantages in its DNA because it's set up that way. And that's how he makes all his money. I would say, well, then make your process to buy more Geicos and fewer net nets. I, 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 You know, we've got lots and lots of stock market history data now from all around the world. You can go and look at the sort of things that have worked and the things that haven't worked. And I think that universally everybody agrees that value is a pretty good way to approach it. Uh, probably these qu- this quality factor, you know, which is – it's always a mix of different things. But so you can use AQR's definition, the QMJ quality minus junk. That's a pretty good definition of, of quality. Work that into your process. That's what I try to do. I just – I'm looking for over the very long run, you know, I hope that I make it to the very long run, over the very long run <laughs> – I try to follow the things that have worked in the past. So I assume that the future is going to look mostly. It's going to look like the past. It's not going to look exactly the same. The business is going to change. We're going to have different business models and different uh, approaches to investing. And interest rates are going to go up. You know, inflation is going to go up. But we've seen that before too. We sort of know what happens in that instance. And in that instance, if those things happen, you want to be in. You know, you don't want to overpay for stuff. You want to be paying a reasonable amount for, for pretty good business. I, I, I'm, you know, to, I, it's, it's almost inevitable, right, that your best investment and your worst investment is going to come outside your, your, your range of expectations. Like you buy a lottery ticket and you, you win the lottery. Yeah, that's going to be your best investment, but I don't think that's a very good process. Equally, on the other side, you know, you, 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 your worst investment, and there's going to be a lot more of those, so the, the other lottery tickets that you bought and they didn't work out, like that doesn't follow the process and, and you, your zeros and all of those. I, I'm just. I'm just. I've made enough mistakes now from not following my process that I just only regard it as a mistake to not follow the process.
2: That's a great analogy. I can't lose the opportunity to ask you about your thoughts around the ESG wave that it's been going through the asset management industry in general and the investment world over the last three years and has gotten a lot of momentum lately. How do you think? ESG in the context of investing, and does it create or negate opportunity for value investors?
0: Yeah, very difficult conversation to have, primarily because we are all going to disagree on the definition of ESG. It's a very personal sort of approach, and environmental uh, is going to break down in one way. Social is going to break down in another way, and governance probably that's the one we can mostly agree on. But you've probably got a governance process as part of your investment, and so do I. And the E and the S, however you feel about the underlying morality or or whatever of those ideas, the way that I think about it is it creates a path for attack for the business. So if there is enough political will to achieve an end. On the E or the S, um, you can be, you know, so cigarette smoking. Um, I don't know whether that falls under any of those, but it was to, to, when the when the courts can make a connection between smoking cigarettes and cancer, then that's always going to create an avenue for legislature or judiciary to attack that business, and that's why they tend to trade at a discount. They've made payments in the past. They probably have to make other payments in the future It's analogous you know is social media potentially um, are they going to be able to make a connection between the damage to somebody's mind and their use of social media I don't think that's a stretch to see the to see some sort of court challenge in in the states by um, some sort of speculative lawyer doing that and achieving something and maybe the legislature grabs that and it gets. So I, 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 whether, you, whether you think about them as um, risks that exist now or sort of contingent risks on something happening in the future is worth paying attention to. I think as an investment strategy, you know, it's uh, as a product, there's nothing that attracts scammers more than getting somebody to pay for something where, you know, the benefit is a little bit more amorphous than just here's the returns for the last five years. They can say, you know, it doesn't really matter what the returns are because we're achieving a charitable end or an environmental or social end. So just pay us the fat fee and we'll we'll, we'll deliver those to you. There's an there's a great bit of uh, there's a new book coming out by Larry Swedrow, uh on ESG and I've I've the book and I've had an opportunity to read the book and he Larry has a great approach to it where he's just let's look at what the claims are, let's look at what the returns have been. Um, it's a it's a complicated question. Because it's there's so many different approaches to it. So it's it's not going to be resolved anytime in the near term. But I do think that it's worthwhile considering the potential avenues of attack.
2: If a lot of people in the market decide for whatever reasons, their own ethical choices, that they don't want to own certain businesses in certain industries. And then they they ask for those businesses to be divested from the portfolios.
0: Um, doesn't that create an opportunity? Um, they, will then, they, will, they will generate a higher return. Yeah. But if you pay less for the same stream of cash flows, you're going to generate a higher return. That's the mm-hmm. case. So, but the question is, is there some sort of contingent risk there that manifests in a big payment that negates that discount? Is that discount then warranted? That's the sort of that's the question that I'm trying to to grapple with. And I, I think that that's, it's some, in some respects, that's what I've been working on with the book you know, the, the, it's always the oblique, atta- it's the attack that you don't expect is the one that hurts you the most because you, you can protect yourself against all of the attacks that you expect. And that's what everybody does. And it's, nobody's ever, you know, if you're in the walled city, it's very, very hard to scale the walls, but it might be the plague inside the city that brings you down. It's always this, it's this thing that you can't anticipate, that is the thing that hurts you. And so I th- Buffett's great skill, I think, has always been to imagine these things that have never happened before and to position himself in a way, you know, he, his whole approach, I think, is to say, um, you know, so there's there's a story that he told his insurance, his two insurance managers to take, this is uh, uh, just blanking on his name at the moment, but he, he told them both to take down their exposure to the World Trade Center, not because yeah. he thought that, Anything was going to happen because he thought they had too much exposure, and I think that that's that's the approach you just got to, have we taken on too much risk where i don't think any, i don't know if anything's going to happen, but if something does happen then we've and I think that that's the that's the approach that I try to take on there's avenues of risk, and we don't necessarily know how this risk manifests, but we know that it could and if the magnitude of the impact is so great that it could materially affect this business for an extended period of time, then maybe the discount is appropriate. And that just is one thing that you find uninvestable as a result. That's very interesting.
2: We are coming to an end of our discussion and we always ask our guests questions. The first one is a book recommendation. But before you give us your book recommendation, I would like to hear a little bit about your new book, if, it's, if possible, if you can give us a little bit of an insight into what that's going to be and when it's coming out. And the second question is an example of a decision where the outcome is poor or has been poor and you can identify the outcome as part of bad process rather than bad luck.
0: Um, the book is about, uh, you know, I, I went through the, like everybody else went through the pandemic um, and was running a business through the pandemic and it was all, it was all incredibly nerve wracking. And I just, I just, I, it got so bad that I started reading philosophy and I think that where it had never resonated with me before for the first time I understood what some of these um, thinkers were grappling with. And I, I say Sun Tzu as being the one that I have read every five years since I was in high school. And every time I read it, I said, this is, I, I don't get it. I don't get why everybody likes this book so much. I can't understand a single thing that's going on here. You know, if you're going across a salt marsh and you're attacked, get you back to the clump of trees. I encounter that every single day when I'm going to school with the kids. So, you know, that was a particular piece of advice, but nothing else is <laughs> sort of, no, there's nothing. It was very hard to understand what was going on in that book, but I read um, some other works by, there's a a, a writer, philosopher Colonel John Boyd in the States who came up with Oodle loops and various other things, and he was talking about Sun Tzu in that context, and he said, you know, there's these other things that lead up to the engagement that you need to think about, and that's, um, you know, is everybody, is everybody in accordance with what we're trying to achieve here? So all of these other little soft things that I had never really considered before that I found very helpful, and when I started reading that, it branched out into these other ideas about grand strategy, which is how nation states deal with each other, and philosophy—the Stoics and the Taoists and, and their ideas—and so it could be total shit. I don't know. It's, it's. I'm still sort of battling my way through this thing, trying to work out whether it's worthwhile or not. I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day or not because it's, it's very, very. It's kind of cringe worthy at the moment, and this is, this is always my process where. The first uh, draft is trash, and then I try to edit it down into something that's that's practical and and useful. And I'm I'm still I'm still at the point where it's trash and it's not practical or useful yet. say so if, if I get it practical or useful, it'll see the light of day. And if I don't, it won't. I'll just keep on talking about it forever. But my my book recommendation, uh, along those same lines, Devil Take the Hindmost, uh, Edward Chancellor's great book. I think Everybody's already read it because it's been around for a long time, but I think it's a particularly good book to read because he talks about all of these speculative episodes that have happened since the 17th century. And every single one of them has resulted in the same way, that there's been a big bust and everybody in them can't see the bust coming. Uh, And then the bust happens and everybody wakes up as if they've snapped out of some sort of daydream and they look back and they think, what were we thinking at that time? And it's certainly, I remember the dot-com boom, and i remember the dot com bust and uh, you know the, the whatever the, whatever we're calling the 2007 eight, nine credit crisis or whatever it was the housing mania and the stock market mania that went along with it i think we're in another one now we're sort of in some sort of mania driven by very low rates there's nowhere else to invest the probably the outcome is going to be the same as well and we'll wake up and we'll say why are we paying 50 times sales for some of these software as a service businesses that makes no sense so i think it's just a good reminder it's good to know that the market can go down 50% in a year or 50% go down or up 50% in any given year. And you should be positioned so you're still in business if you go down 50%. So there's a little bit more risk out there than you may appreciate if you've only been in the market for the last like 13 years or so, which is an unusually yeah. long period of time. Yeah. And the um,
2: the example of a position that ended bad that you can identify whether that's bad, bad luck or... Uh, but no, you to bad process rather than bad luck.
0: So I talk about this pretty regularly because it's still fresh in my mind. And I, Jake, my co-host, Jake Taylor, my co-host on um, Value After Hours, he did this research in 2015 where he looked at the spread between the most overvalued companies and the most undervalued companies. And he wrote this article or this blog post and it said, this is the worst opportunity set for value in 25 years, which is as far back as this data went. And I took that blog post and I rewrote my own version of it and, and linked him up and I read through that and I just then continued to be a value investor for the next six years and suffered as a consequence. What I should have done at that stage is taken the next step and I try to do this now. You know, Say so, well, and then what, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? How can we position ourselves for that? So, I think that value was a um, – value did exceptionally well from the bottom 2002, once the dot-com carnage had cleared until about 2015, 16, 17, 18, depending on how much kind of quality you had in your portfolio. And um, it was a it was a victim of its own success. It got too expensive. It, even though it was still at, those value stocks were still at a discount to the better stuff, it wasn't a big enough discount. And you were paid better to go and pick up some better businesses at a slightly higher multiple. And I think that that was the mistake that I made. And I've, I've tried to, I, I don't want to time the market in the sense that I'm, next time it happens, I'm going to go and try and buy better quality businesses. I just want to take that process. So it makes no difference to me what the market looks like. Some of it I think is unavoidable. Like there's this, all the best value firms I think ran pretty well until 2017 and then just hit a wall as the market got speculative from 2018, pretty much until about a year ago. And it was that little air pocket that had a lot of us questioning whether we were doing the right thing or whether we'd missed something. I think that you can't change your process because of those speculative episodes. You go back and have a look there. There are many, many, many of them in the market. And if you change through those things and you and you get smashed up on the other side, you're better off staying with your process. But that signal in 2015 was one that we wrote about and we both missed and I, I tried to probably get a little bit more quality in my portfolio as a result of that. So I'll buy better things um, when they go on sale, but that's something that Buffett told everybody to do about 30 years ago so, or 40 years ago. So that's, that's no innovation there.
2: That's very interesting. Tobias thank you very much for being part
0: of the Perspective. Thanks Juan, so much fun.